Welcome to the Body, Mind, Spirit podcast, podcast for the Idea Crucible, an online magazine focusing on body, mind, spirit, therapy, and integration. Today, joining us is Nikki Kenward, craniosacral therapist. Nikki is a diverse woman with a varied background, coming to us today from the UK. Among her various passions, she does yoga, dance, theater, circus, performance in all of its varied manners, walks along the Thames River, and also happens to be a colleague instructor for the Upland. Institute, where she teaches craniosacral therapy. Today, we will be talking about her new book called All in the Gut, Let Your Second Brain Guide You to Optimal Health. Nikki, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be here, Eric. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, you bet. And uh, your book just got recently published, right? That's right. Uh, Literally in April, just a couple of days before the launch of the conference. Very exciting to go to the States and actually hold on in my hand for the first time. I would imagine. (laughs) Well, congratulations once again. Was it a long process for you writing the book or did did it just flow out of you? How did that go? I was such a virgin author, Eric. I'd written articles but never a book. So I wrote the book in six months, the first draft. I took time off and I really enjoyed that and it flowed pretty much but the really hard bit was the 18 months of editing and layout and cover and that was the difficult bit for me. Wow. Yeah, I, I would imagine those are the things most of us don't think about whenever we fantasize about perhaps writing a book. Exactly. I had no idea. When I finished the first draft, I thought, yay, I finished the book. No. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot to learn. <laughs> I'm sure you could tell some stories. Well, if you would, just tell us about your book. We'd love to hear a little bit about it. So the book arose really out of my own personal journey with my gut. Over 25 years of clinical practice, lots of people coming to me with chronic gut problems, didn't know what to do with them, didn't seem to be able to, if you'll pardon the pun, get to the bottom of it all. (laughs) And sorry, that was terrible. (laughs) I'm sure there are lots of puns you can have. Oh, there's so many with my subjects you would not believe. Also, uh, there's so much being written and researched at the moment about the gut. I just felt for me personally, I couldn't quite somehow connect with the emotional stories in my gut that I knew were there. So that was my jumping off point, And that's what my book is about. It's about showing people how I got there and hopefully helping them to connect with the emotional history in their gut so they can facilitate it to be functioning in a more comfortable and healthy way. A lot of directions I could go with that just introduction you just gave. Mm. So one of the first ones is you mentioned that the book is kind of a combination of your personal journey with your own gut, yes. your experience yes. with clients, and then also yeah. the, the interest in research currently. Yes. And as a fellow practitioner, you know, I always get in, interested mm. by the intersection between our own stories and the stories mm. from our clients and how that helps us develop as practitioners. Could yes. you talk just a little bit about how that interface has worked for you and, uh, and how it shows up in this book? Well, the more I got into realizing that I couldn't connect very well with my own emotional gut, and then I thought maybe that's why I'm not able to facilitate that with the people that come to me. The whole thing just seemed to come and hit me in the face, if you like. 
I just thought I really want to explore this and look at this and work on myself. So I started reading about it and trying things out with my study group and on, and and it became increasingly fascinating to me. So yes, it, that interface is really interesting and, that, and more and more people were coming with chronic gut problems that you know they'd got nutritional help and advice but that wasn't sorting the problem out how my journey was too I knew there was something underlying that and it was very tantalizing it was like I couldn't quite reach it and and now I feel I'm starting to make more connection I don't think I've found some magic cure or mantra or hands-on protocol or silver bullet I don't think we're that simple I think we're complex and I think the gut is particularly complex but what I hope to offer people is another way of looking at it and maybe a, a new awareness of how they can work with what's happening and understand it better okay well let's talk a little bit about the different way of looking at it a bit because you also mentioned that a lot of your clients were coming to you with nutritional advice and then kind of mm. alluding to this being something different. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, a lot of people that when they initially have chronic gut problems, whether it's inflammatory bowel or irritable bowel or Crohn's or celiacs or diverticulitis or a whole range of things, the first thing they do, um, quite understandably, is look at what they're eating, their diet. They may go and adjust their diet in many ways, take out gluten or dairy or, you know, have an individual diet plan. And that's all good and dandy. However, they would then come to me saying, but I've been doing all this and I'm not a nutritionist. So why am I still having these problems? And so, yes, so then I would work with them in a very different way and say, well, yeah, that's great. But if you've got an emotional history stored in any one of the many layers of the small or large intestine, if you've got memory there from challenge and trauma in the past, it doesn't really matter what food you put in. Your gut is going to react to that food in a certain way. So if you look at the underlying issues, the emotional history, in the gut, the gut is more likely to be able to accept the food that you eat. Does that make sense? It does. Well, it, it definitely <laughs> makes sense, and I can imagine we might have some people listening where that might be a little bit newer of a concept. So yeah. how, how does trauma affect the gut? How does emotional history affect the gut? Well, massively, both fight, flight, and freeze. Um, I think when we have, for example, let's take a child who's had a traumatic experience, something that happens to a lot of people, and they often will go into freeze. They will dissociate um, from the overwhelming um, emotions and in the intensity of the situation they're in, in order, of course, to protect themselves, to they don't know what to do with all this um, emotional experience they're having. So part of that dissociation, it seems to me, is often storing stuff in the body and often in the gut, and the gut goes into a kind of freeze mode. It also, it can vacillate between fight and flight and freeze. And some of the sensory neurons in the gut have memory. Some of the new research tells us that. And so they remember these difficult times and they continue to react and overreact. 
to what we eat. I feel I've kind of gone off piste a bit with that. It is a new concept. And when you get your hands on and you can work your way with intention through all the different layers, the different cells in the gut where you're drawn to, you can find the history, the tension patterns, the strain patterns, just as we do as body workers elsewhere in the body. And if you release those, then there may be a memory, there may be some emotion, there may be a reset in the gut, and the gut behaves in a different way. So how does the gut have its own memory? Well, one thing is the intrinsic sensory neurons have something called slow, sustained, postsynaptic events, which means that they remember for a long time after an event what they experienced, what they sensed. Okay. So that's just one group of cells, group of neurons in the gut that we know actually do that. We also know from our workers, up-ledger craniosacral therapist, that the tissue, the fascia, of course a lot of nerves are partly fascia, all the layers in the gut have fascia in and around them, can hold memory, can hold the history of our body. We find that all through the body as we work, and the gut is no different. So I'm, I'm really getting a picture of the complexity of which you speak here. Yeah. Uh, let's define a couple of terms really quick. You talk about neurons in the gut and their ability to essentially change and adapt to the memory and experiences. Yes. And I know that it's kind of a big deal to talk about the gut brain uh, in mm -hmm. some cases. Could you just define a little bit about the gut brain and yes. maybe also talk a little bit about, well, what's the relationship between this? I mean, is it really a brain? And what's the relationship between this brain and our gut and the one that we have in our head, for example? Sure. So we know that the enteric nervous system, which is the name for the nervous system in the gut, the enteric nervous system, we know that that has a superhighway to the brain via the vagus nerve. And most of us know that, the gut-brain axis. And there are many more messages and signals that go from the enteric system to the brain in our head than go the other way. Wow. Um, However, we also know that there are many complete reflex circuits in the enteric system that make their own autonomous decisions and do not refer to the brain in the head at all. So it becomes very complex because we have this strong superhighway of connection, but we also have individual circuits. We have all the um, neurotransmitters that are present in the brain and the head are present in the gut. So there are as many neurons in the gut as there are in the spinal cord. Wow. So we have a complex modern data processing center which can make its own decisions. And most people exploring it now, whether they're gastroenterologists or microbiologists or psychiatrists, would say that that has to have that has to do with much more than just getting the feces out of the body. There has to be more to it mm -hmm. than that because it's a massive center of processing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So it's like we have the nervous system in there that's yeah. making its own decisions independent of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's also sending a lot of information to the brain and receiving yes. some information from the brain. 
I heard yeah. you say that it's actually sending more information to the brain than it's coming back the other way. That's correct. What might be some of the decisions that the gut might make that would be independent of the brain? Well, this is where we get into the emotional gut. And this is, I think, why I find it so hard to work with my own gut, which I like to call post-traumatic gut. Because, because it felt like my gut was making its own decision when to do something or when to be sore or when to react to something quite independently of anything my brain was doing or I was aware of cognitively. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. And so then I think, well, it, what, why are you doing that? I don't understand. What's that all about? That's really helpful. Thank you. So You're continuing welcome. to talk a little bit about the structure of the gut. Okay, so yeah. we have the belly. We just talked about there being sort of a nervous system there. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there's more than the nervous system. What are some of the other key structures that you're really focusing on uh, as we talk about this? Sure. So I focus a bit on the whole of the long tube, which goes from the mouth down through the esophagus, the stomach, small intestine, large intestine, and out through the anus. And that is one long tube. It's about nine meters in length. Okay. A lot of it's bunched up in our middle, obviously. And I like to think of, and that tube is hollow. So everything inside that tube is the outside world until any of it gets absorbed into our system, our bloodstream, mostly through the small intestine, then it becomes part of us. So to me, it's the outside world coming in and how we respond to that. And how we respond to that is based on our emotional history and the context. For the book, a lot of the work that I do is focused around very much the small and large intestine and all the layers involved in that. Because the small intestine, of course, is where we absorb the food and that world, mainly. So nervous system, the structures of the tube itself, which would be mm. muscle and connective tissue and stuff like that. Any other pieces in there in this complex system that you're referring to as well? Absolutely. So the enteric nervous system has two major nerve plexi, which I talk about a lot. One is Auerbach's plexus, which starts in the esophagus and goes through the entire system until it reaches the end of the colon. And then that sandwich between two layers of muscle. And the fibers of Auerbach's plexus go through one of the layers of muscle in the intestine, small and large, and esophagus, and create the finer network of the second big nerve plexus of the enteric system, which is Meissner's plexus, which is more sensory. So those are the key parts of the enteric system. So it's harder to get your head around because the brain in our head is just that. It's in the head. It's one lump, so to speak. But here, it's going through all these tubes in layers sandwiched between, you know, muscles, fascia, immune cells, all kinds of things. We have this nervous system like a matrix, like a web. Okay. And so the other part I focus on a lot that 
We know from Tad Vanavir, our amazing colleague who's done the glial work in the brain, is that there are enteric glia in the gut which support, maintain, and interact with the enteric neurons just as the glial in the brain do. So I talk about that quite a lot and the microbiota. So those are the main foci. Okay. Well, and it makes sense to me that here we have a portal from the outside of the body to the inside of the body. Everywhere Mm -hmm. else we have skin, which is going to be relatively tough and not particularly permeable. But here's a place where we're truly taking stuff from the outside and starting it to absorb it and bring it into us. Absolutely. I guess it would, because we're particularly vulnerable there, it would make sense that we would need a particularly sophisticated system to monitor what gets in and what doesn't. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I think the other bit that's really fascinating for me is the barrier in the intestines. So the intestinal epithelial barrier, which is just a single layer of cells, different cells, which in the end decides who gets in and who doesn't get in, what gets in and what doesn't, and is affected by emotional stress more than anything else you can care to mention. And it's like in this single layer of cells, it hovers, it seems to me, between the outside world and our inside world. And I just find as a concept that fascinates me. Yeah, for sure, that a single layer of cells would end up determining what gets in or what doesn't. Yes. I know we talk about being thin-skinned or thick-skinned, but that's a whole different perspective on that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So before we go back to big picture on the book again, one other thing I want to follow up on, you did mention the microbiota or the microbiome. What is that and how does that play? Well, there's another whole big chunk there, isn't there? Because there's so much out there now about the gut bacteria, the microbiota. Now, what I find fascinating about that is that the microbiota are in constant conversation with the enteric neurons and the enteric glial cells. So they're part of this whole interaction. But we also know, don't we, that the gut bacteria, the microbiota, has its own genome, which is way older than the human genome. In fact, there's a whole project now looking at all the genes in the gut bacteria. Wow. So it becomes so complex, my mind wanted to explode because I think, well, how does our life then impact on epigenetically on the genes of the bacteria, never mind the genes in the human genome? But the whole thing works together. So you always have conversations between the enteric neurons, the enteric glial cells, the gut bacteria, and all the other cells in the gut. It's a very busy place. So you can't talk about the bacteria without implicating the second brain, and nor can you talk about the second brain without bringing in the bacteria into the conversation. And so they're really, they're, they really have a delicate relationship. Hugely important. If you take just one of the cells in the gut, which I'm particularly fond of, which its full name is the enterochromaffin cell, well, there's more than one, obviously, but they are the enterochromaffin cells. I like to call them muffin cells because I can remember that more easily. <laughs> and um, so our muffin cells make all the serotonin in the gut, and 95% of the serotonin in the body is made 
by the entrocromaffin cells in the gut and they store the cells. Now, the reason I share that with you is that the gut bacteria, if we've got the right gut bacteria, they work with the muffin cells to make the serotonin. If you don't have a good, diverse gut bacteria, flora in the gut, the muffin cells can only make 40% of the serotonin they would like to make. Wow. So it shows you how important those relationships are. Well, and then, of course, the implication with serotonin being related to depression and mood and happiness. Huge. Yeah. It's huge. And then we wonder why when people are put on SSRIs for depression, that can have a really unfortunate effect on the gut. Okay. That's uh, that's really impressive. Mm. And I can really appreciate why this is just now starting to become such a big topic. Yes. Well, this concludes part one of my interview with author Nikki Kenward, author of the recently published book, It's All in Your Gut, Let Your Second Brain Guide You to Optimal Health. In the second interview, second part of the interview, Nikki and I will continue the conversation that we began in this first one about gut health and her book and expand into bigger picture ideas on post-traumatic gut, befriending our gut, what kind of intelligence might arise from our gut brain, and the future of therapy with these skills in mind. See you over there.